This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Our scripture reading from today is from Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 through 4. It can be found on page 811 in your Black Pew Bible. Matthew 6, verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Good morning. Hey, welcome to Redeemer. My name is Andrew. I am one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm really glad to be with you uh, this morning. Hey, Ben Raff is a massive gift uh, to this church. So he does a lot of things that uh, you probably don't get to see and experience every single week. Uh, but my gosh, the, the effort, the prayers, um, the, the counseling, the discipline that he puts in towards uh, loving our kids and helping them to grow in knowing Jesus is massive. Um, so if you uh, see him, give him a high five, uh, tell him thank you for everything that he does. Um, and yeah, he did a great job planning student retreat. I did not know how passionate kids got about candy. I do know now. If you, um, I got cornered by Benjamin Martin, cornered. And he told me why Laffy Taffy is the best candy. And I kind of came away convinced that he was right. <laughs> Which I never thought would happen. All right, hey, let's, uh, let's pray. And then let's see what Jesus has to say. God, thank you. Um, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for all of the ways that you are at work. Uh, where we can't see you. Um, you, you are doing things, you are showing up, you're speaking, you're changing lives, you're changing hearts, you're changing trajectories. Um, so thank you. Thank you that we just get to um, watch the work that you're already doing. And you invite us to like, join with you and you use us. Thank you so much for that. Lord, will you speak to us today? Will you let the words of Jesus uh, pierce our hearts, pierce areas of resistance or strongholds that we've built up? And will you make us a more generous, merciful, compassionate people? Um, I want that. We want that. And we need you for that to happen. Uh, so Lord, will you bless the proclamation of your word, and will you change us? In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, when I, when I ask you the question, what makes a good person, or how do you define a good person, what are things that you would think of? I think that we all have things kind of inside of our guts that when we see someone doing something or embodying something, we say, oh, that is a good person. That's what a good person does. A good person supports the right kind of causes. 
a good person, respects people, is kind to people. Uh, in our culture, we love stories of people kind of overcoming impossible odds to achieve something great. We love it even more if those people, as they're overcoming those impossible odds, help other people around them. Um, there, there, there are things that we can point to and say, oh, yep, that is uh, what a good person does. Now, I think one of the things that is universally celebrated and recognized as what good people do is giving to people who are less fortunate um, than others, especially, especially this time of year, right? Uh, pretty soon, you're going to walk into every grocery store, and there's going to be a person ringing a bell uh, with a red kettle uh, to collect money donations for those in need. I was walking into Hy-Vee yesterday. And there was a mom walking in uh, with her daughter, and she was explaining, hey, uh, sweetie, this is the time of year where we take things that we have and we give to people uh, who are less fortunate uh, than us. Uh, there's, there's just this um, something inside of us that knows there is inherent goodness in sacrificing and practicing generosity towards those who are in need. And the Bible affirms that impulse all over the place. All throughout scripture, you see God's heart um, for the poor, the widow, the needy, uh, the refugee, and a foundational practice for followers of God from the beginning of the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament is giving generously, sacrificially to those who are in need which is what Jesus is talking about uh, in our passage today. But instead of making a case for why it's important to do that or trying to convince you that you should do that, Jesus assumes that you already know it's a good thing to do. Jesus assumes um, that you are actually driven to help those around you. So instead of trying to construct an argument for, hey, here's why you should take some of your hard-earned resources and give it to others, Jesus assumes that if you're following him, you're doing that. What he's going to do instead is offer a corrective for the ways that we go about helping others in need around us. So if you uh, are new with us or if you haven't been here for a while, we are almost smack dab in the middle of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Next week, we'll be going through the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is the pinnacle. It's the center point. It's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're halfway through uh, and we'll be here for the rest of the year uh, and a little bit into the new year, seeing what Jesus has to say. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is, is giving his kingdom values. He's explaining this is what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes into the world, this is uh, what it looks like when God rules as king, and these are the kind of people who inhabit the kingdom. If you want to know the values of the kingdom, if you want to know how to live life in the kingdom of God, Jesus explains it in the Sermon on the Mount. And in this section, uh, Jesus is spending a lot of time talking about what it means to embody righteousness, a real kind of righteousness, a righteousness that he says is beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees. If you don't know who they were, they were the best people in the world back then. They were the super righteous people. They were the good people. They were the people who had it together uh, and did what you were supposed to do. And Jesus is saying, hey, uh, the people in my kingdom actually embody a different 
greater kind of righteousness. So he's just finished talking about things that are in every single one of our hearts that stand in the way of practicing this kind of righteousness, things like anger or envy or retaliation. And now he's turning to say, okay, if those are the things that stand in the way of it, how do you actually pursue, embody, cultivate a life of righteousness in the kingdom of God? And so he's going to kind of focus on three foundational practices that he expects anyone who's following him uh, to pursue. And they are generosity, sacrificial giving to the needy around you, prayer, and fasting. And we're going to look at each one of those uh, in the coming weeks. And so as Jesus talks about those disciplines, he's really emphatic that the way you go about doing those things really matters. Your heart and your motivation behind the thing matters. Who you are looking to please matters. And Jesus says that who you are looking to please, who you're doing these things for, actually matters more than anything else. So in our um, four verses today, three verses, however many verses it is, I'm not great at math, um, Jesus has two big assumptions baked into his teaching and one promise. So that's how we're going to go through it today. We're going to look at the two assumptions that Jesus holds about the people who are hearing his words and the promise on the other side of it. So uh, look down in your Bibles with me. Uh, and We'll start looking at assumption number one that Jesus makes in this teaching, and it is that Christians give to the needy. People who know God, who follow God, give generously, give sacrificially. Our passage uh, begins, if, if, if you heard, in verse 2 uh, with the word thus, which is a connecting word, right? It's pointing to something that's come before and drawing a conclusion from it. So let me read uh, chapter 6, verse 1 again. Uh, this is kind of Jesus' thesis for this section of the teaching where he says, hey, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order... That's, that in order is, it's, it's a purpose. This is the reason uh, that people who practice righteousness, to be seen by them. So he says, hey, be careful. When you are doing these things that you're supposed to be doing, be careful why you're doing them. Um, he says, be careful of doing them in order to be seen by others. For, because, then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is going to draw this kind of contrast all throughout. Be careful of doing the good things, of doing the right things, so that you can be well thought of by other people. Instead, do them before the face of God, for God, out of a response to the mercy and the grace that you have received from um, him. So the whole point of this passage is that there is a danger in practicing our righteousness in front of people so that they see us and praise us. Instead, practice your righteousness, do the good things where only God can see you. 
And we learn, uh, I think, something pretty important about what Jesus means by righteousness here. A lot of times you hear that term if you've, if you've been around church. That it can sound really abstract. It's like, what is righteousness? Is it some kind of like uh, abstract gas or substance or, or thing? For Jesus, righteousness looks like concrete actions done towards and for other people. Um, so here, practicing righteousness looks like giving money, not just money, uh, that, that, that phrase right there, uh, when you give to the needy, literally you could translate that, uh, when you are merciful towards, when you show compassion to, when you uh, demonstrate mercy towards someone in need. So it is financial, it is economic, but it's, he's really talking about any act of compassion, mercy, or kindness that you do for uh, other people. That's what practicing righteousness looks like. And notice, Jesus assumes that the people who are listening to him are already doing this. How do I know that? Two times he says, hey, when you give to the needy, beginning of verse 2, Beginning of verse three, but when you give to the needy, not if or you should, he, he's just assuming that everyone who's listening to him is already making it a habit and a practice of giving sacrificially to the poor and the needy who are around them. And the reason that Jesus is doing that is because he's standing on the foundation of the Old Testament and living in a world and a culture uh, where showing generosity to the poor and the needy uh, was just something that you did. It was just baked into everyday life. So a few places in the Old Testament, um, all throughout the Old Testament, God talks about his heart for and his desire for his people to be generous to those who are in need. So you think about uh, Leviticus 19, right at the very beginning uh, of the Bible. Leviticus, you might say it's the most boring book in the Bible. I say give it another chance. Is that a jet? That's crazy. All right. I really like jets, so I'm enjoying this moment right now. <laughs> Leviticus 19. Uh, God is talking to uh, his people who have just been called out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, and he's saying, hey, don't forget who I am. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, uh, brought you to myself. And that's what defines you as a people. So, so God in Leviticus is giving the people of Israel an identity. Who am I? Who are we? We are people who have received mercy from God. We're people who have been given um, abundant resources by this holy God. And so God says, hey, um, because you are a recipient of mercy and because I am a holy God, therefore you ought to give generously. You ought to practice mercy. You ought to be holy as I am holy. So Leviticus 19, God says one of the ways that you do this, if you're a farmer, if you're a business owner, do not extract every single profit that you can. Don't harvest the entire field. Leave a portion, a chunk of your field for the poor, for the people who don't have any land to come in and they can harvest that and they can take all of that for themselves. So, so God is building in this expectation uh, that we're not going to maximize our profits and taking everything in for ourselves, but we're going to leave stuff, resources, food left over for the people who don't have it. That's just what the people of God did. 
On top of that, there was a yearly prescribed tithe that the people of God were uh, supposed to give. The tithe is about 10% of, of your income. And remember, um, people aren't like working for paychecks back then. They're, they're harvesting food, they're harvesting grain, they're raising livestock. So God is saying, hey, at the end of the year, uh, 10% of everything that you gave, give it away. Give it to the priests, give it to the temple, uh, help fund the work of worship that is going on uh, in the world, but also give away to the poor, give away to the needy. So that's pretty significant, right? Don't extract every single profit that you can get, give away 10% of everything that you make. On top of that, there are regular offerings that you're supposed to make for the poor, for the priests, for the people who aren't able to bring things in uh, for themselves. Every third year, you make a special offering uh, for the poor and the community. Every 50 years, you're supposed to wipe away every debt. You're supposed to restore land to its original owners, and you're supposed to set slaves free. So in the Old Testament, if people are doing everything that God says, they're not just giving away 10% of what they make. It's, it's more like they're giving away 25% every single year of what they bring in with the expectation that every 50th year, everything resets itself. So there is a, like, think about the economics of that. How, do, how does that work out? It's, it's crazy. God is calling his people to practice radical, maybe even foolish generosity for the sake of the poor. And in Jesus's day, uh, when most of the uh, Jewish people didn't live in Israel, they couldn't actually go to the temple to bring in their offerings. They were scattered throughout the world. The way that you practiced righteousness, the way that you showed that you are a follower of God is you gave to the poor and you gave to the needy. It's just, it's what you did. Jesus lived in a culture that was built on these practices of the Old Testament where the way that you practiced and showed that you were a righteous person was by giving to the needy. That's why he can say, hey, when you give, it's just, it's, 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 it's what you did. We're sitting here in 2022, and if Jesus is delivering this uh, word to us today, I don't know if he makes that same assumption. He probably doesn't. Uh, because statistically, as we've become wealthier and as we get more disposable income, uh, the levels that we give away uh, go down. So in uh, the United States today, the average Christian uh, gives away about 2% of what they make uh, to either their church or to the poor or to support missions. Uh, it's not anywhere near that uh, 10% number that you nearly hear, or let alone the you know 25% number that if you add everything up in the uh, in the Old Testament, 10% um, of church attending Christians never contribute anything uh, financially. About 15% of church going Christians in the United States give 80% of the money that's donated. So we live uh, in a world where we have way more resources than anyone living in Jesus' day. But we hold on to them a little bit tighter than they did back then. This blew my mind. Uh, I read the stat. If every church-attending Christian in America gave away 10% of their income, it would generate between an additional 140 to 180 billion dollars a year in charitable giving, which is enough to 
end world hunger multiple times over, like uh, translate the Bible into every language, fund missionaries for hundreds of years. And that's just one year. So what Jesus, I think, is calling us to do or wanting us to do, you know, uh, I, I hear all the time, like, hey, man, you know, billionaires have so much money if they just gave away uh, what they have. Think about all the good that could be done in the world. And that's, like, that's, that's fair. Some people have, like, a stupid amount of money, probably more money than it is good for them. I think what Jesus would want us to do, though, is first turn the mirror around on ourselves and say, hey, are you actually practicing generosity? And do you know what collectively the church could do if we actually lived up to the words that Jesus called us to do? The New Testament doesn't prescribe like a percentage for you to give away. There is an assumption, though, that if you've tasted the grace of God, if you define yourself as a recipient of costly mercy, then that means you live and respond as one who is merciful and as one who is eager to give away what you've received. So, assumption number one that Jesus makes, the people who hear this are practicing it. I want to say, probably can't make that assumption today. And even though there are crazy generous people in this room, maybe there's a opportunity for us, especially at this time of year, to reflect, hey, what, am I embodying the radical kind of generosity, mercy, and compassion that Jesus is talking about in this passage when he assumes that we give to the needy? So assumption number one, Jesus assumes that Christians give, that Christians practice generosity. The second assumption that Jesus makes is that we all have mixed motives as we do that. We all have mixed motives as we do that. Let me read these verses again. Thus, when you give to the needy, when you show compassion, when you are merciful, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised. There's that goal again. That's the reason why they're doing it. That they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you give to the needy, show mercy to the needy, are compassionate, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. So Jesus is structuring uh, this teaching around a set of contrasts. Don't give like this, do give like this. And what he's doing is pointing to this dangerous tendency that's inside of all of us to twist and corrupt good things towards selfish ends. So notice there, like the action still is good. It's still good if someone gives something away to a person in need. What Jesus is saying, though, is you can do that good thing with a wildly corrupt, self-serving heart. And if you do that, you're in danger. So um, he gives two ways, two corrupt ways that this tends to work itself out um, in our lives and the first corrupt way uh, to give, practice this kind of generosity that Jesus is talking about is the way of the hypocrite. 
who shows up in verse two. And like, um, nobody knows if people were actually blowing trumpets when they're giving money away or if Jesus is just making fun of people who are really showy and flashy. I hope that Jesus is just making fun of people because that makes me feel good inside, but I don't know. There could have been some practice uh, back then where people would go around blowing trumpets in the street to like, you say, hey, there's resources, there's money, there are things to give away. If you're, if you're in need, uh, come, come and get it. What Jesus is pointing to fundamentally though is this kind of um, flashy, flagrant, charitable giving that's being done so other people can't miss it. Uh, it's, it's not being done necessarily for the sake of, of, of the people who are in need. It's being done so people can look at you and be really impressed. And notice that Jesus says this happens in two places, in the synagogue and in the streets. The synagogue is kind of the closest equivalent to what a church would be uh, in Jesus's day. It's a gathering place where people will come to hear the law, to receive instruction, and uh, where um, resources would be given out to those in need in the community. So it's kind of like a dual community center, house of worship. And he says, hey, when you come and when you're gathered here in the synagogue, don't blow a trumpet when the, when the offering pass, uh, plate is being passed. Just give secretly. When you're out in the street, make sure that when you see someone who's in need, that you help them and don't worry about if, whether or not anyone sees you. And the, the hypocrite that he's talking about here, uh, you, if, if you're in church, you might have heard um, a definition of a hypocrite kind of as someone who doesn't practice what they preach that's not really what Jesus is talking about when he talks about hypocrites. Uh, in his day, a hypocrite is just an actor. Uh, actors get up on stage. They play a part. Most of the time, they are wearing an actual mask uh, to cover their real identity. So Jesus is not pointing out people whose actions are inconsistent with their words. Their actions actually might be really consistent with their words. They're saying, hey, you should do this, and then they're going and doing it. The problem is they're playing a part. There's no heart. There's no reality behind it. The only reason that they're doing it is so that you see them and you think, wow, that's a good person. That is an impressive person. And do I have to talk about the danger of hypocrisy in our social media context? Like, we have way more opportunity today to do good things, to practice righteousness so that we're seen by others than anything Jesus would have encountered in his day. Like we all have trumpets in our pockets that are way louder than any horn that they could have blown back then. So Jesus is warning and saying, hey, when you're doing the thing, are you doing it so that you get the like, so that you get the comment, so that you get the kind of feeling inside of your gut when you did the good thing. Because if you are, he's saying that's the only reward you're gonna get from it. And how long does that last? How long does the dopamine hit from a like actually last? What does that actually give you? And when you think about it, the people who are praising us today, like you see a picture, you like it, and then you scroll on, you forget about it. There's nothing lasting there. Jesus is saying there is a better way. So the first way of practicing generosity is the way of the hypocrite. The second corrupt way of 
practicing or embodying this kind of righteousness and generosity is the way of quiet pride. It's the way of quiet, self-serving vanity and pride. So if the hypocrites are blowing trumpets, if they're making sure that everyone around them can see them, then the quietly prideful are practicing generosity, practicing this righteousness to feel better about themselves. It's a more subtle form of, uh, of, of hypocrisy because only you know that you're doing it. Only you know whether or not you are helping this person to self-justify, to build up some kind of self-esteem, to make yourself into the kind of person that you think you ought to be. It's way more subtle. And so Jesus says, hey, when you give to the needy, don't even let yourself know that you're giving to the needy. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. I love what Frederick Bruner says here about this verse. He says, when we give to others, not only should there be no external trumpets, there shouldn't even be an internal soundtrack pointing to our own goodness and worth. Jesus recognizes that we all have really subtle ways of exercising pride so that giving becomes a mean of cultivating vanity, pride, excessive self-regard, and putting other people in our debt so that we know, well, at least I'm better than that guy. John Stott um, says in his commentary on Sermon on the Mount, the Greek word for almsgiving indicates that it's a work of mercy. Yet it's possible to turn an act of mercy into an act of vanity so that our principal motive in giving isn't the benefit of the person receiving the gift, but our own benefit who give it. And so if the hypocrites have received their reward in full, which when Jesus says, uh, hey, they've received their reward in full, he's using a contractual economic term, uh, which refers to an exchange of goods and services where the full price has been paid and you got a receipt to prove that the price has been paid. So what Jesus is saying is that when you give so that other people praise you, or when you give to stoke some kind of self-regard, vanity, or pride, you're actually not giving. You're buying something. You're buying the hit, you're buying the pride, you're buying the standing, you're buying the praise. And Jesus says, hey, you don't have to live like that because that's a pretty horrible reward. It doesn't last. It's like trying to grasp onto or hold fog. You know, you just like keep grabbing and it just keeps slipping through your fingers. So you have to keep going over and over and over and over again. So if Christians are supposed to give, if our motives are always mixed, then what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is the promise that Jesus gives at the end of this teaching here, which is that God rewards any sacrifice made in his name. God rewards any sacrifice made in his name. So when you're giving, not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And so with mixed motivations, which we all have, right? 
um, I have found it really easy to get up in my head about like, well, man, if my motivations are mixed, like if I'm not supposed to let my left hand know what my right hand is doing, then like, what's the point? How do I even do it? Because like my motivations are always going to be mixed, right? So like, is Jesus condemning me if I'm doing the right thing? But I'm trying to do the thing that Jesus says, but like, am I supposed to what, wear a disguise when I give money to the guy in the corner? Or do I just give cash so I don't actually give any tax benefit, you know, from like my charitable giving? And like, it's overcomplicating it. It's overcomplicating it. What Jesus is actually saying, I think, is pretty simple. He's saying that when you give, your audience really matters. And if you give, even with mixed motives, because we're always going to have mixed motives, but if you give out of a desire to be seen, known, loved, to imitate the way that God has acted towards you, then that's where we experience a real reward. Why? Because if almsgiving, if um, sacrificial, generous, foolish giving of our resources to others is what it looks like to show mercy, then when we do that, we're actually acting the way that God has acted towards us. We're actually acting more godlike. We're imitating our Father. We're acting like we are part of his family. And so the basic promise that Jesus is making is that acts of generosity done with no expectation that anyone will ever see and without the possibility of you getting anything out of it are exactly the kind of things that the Father loves to see and to reward. And again, uh, I, uh, I have a hunch that because you're in this room, you, you, you come from a certain Christian background that is maybe uncomfortable with talking about rewards uh, because we've probably all seen that late night televangelist who is encouraging us to just send in $20 because if you do that, if you sow your seed in faith, then you know, you're going to get 10 to- tenfold back, right? So give 20, the return on your investment is going to be 200. Cool, look how that works out. If it didn't work out, you didn't have enough faith. Like that's gross, right? No one likes that. And so when we hear this, when we hear Jesus uh, talking about receiving a reward, I think that's the first thing that kind of our guts and our hearts can jump to. It's like, well, I don't really, that's gross. I don't really want that. So what is Jesus talking about? I think that reveals more about us than it reveals about Jesus because that is a wildly deficient understanding of what a reward is, right? Um, C.S. Lewis is really, really helpful here. C.S. Lewis is helpful pretty much anywhere, right? Um, If you want to know something, just go read Mere Christianity. You'll be better. So Lewis talks about uh, rewards as being the fulfillment of the act itself, right? So a reward is not something artificial that's tacked onto the back end of a good deed, what, what, what does that mean? So, so Lewis will give this example of, hey, what's the reward for a couple in love? Is it that they get a tax break uh, when they get married and they get to file, um, however they file, you, you're married now, so you get a, cool, you get a tax break. It's like, no, of course, that's ridiculous. That's not the reward. The reward for a couple in love is marriage. It's the fulfillment of the thing itself. It's the full and final expression of it. What is the reward for putting work into a relationship? 
for acting lovingly towards another person, for considering them to be more important than yourselves. Well, the reward for that isn't that you get a check at the end of it. It's that you have a flourishing, healthy relationship. The reward for study, for trying to learn, is wisdom. It's knowledge, right? So when Jesus is talking about receiving a reward, he's not talking about like a bonus check that you're going to get at the end of the year from God. What he's saying is if the reward for the hypocrites is praise from people, which fades away, isn't lasting, you always need another hit, the reward for practicing righteousness before the face of God is praise from God. It's regard, it's honor, it's nearness to God. And notice, throughout this passage, Jesus calls God Father. Jesus calls God Father more times in this chapter than any other section in the New Testament. So he's intentionally talking about our relationship to practicing righteousness in family terms, right? So he's not saying this, cold, distant overseer or manager of the universe is going to reward uh, good karma. He's saying, no, it's, it's your father who's going to draw near to you, who's going to delight in the way that his child is acting like him. Hey, child of God, recipient of grace and mercy, look at you showing grace and mercy. Look at you looking like your father. So dad's do give out allowances, right? They give things to their kids. But what's the greatest gift that a good father can give to their kids? Like it's himself. It's his presence. It's his nearness. It's his closeness. That's what Jesus is talking about. If, if, if you want more of God in your life, he's like, this is a way to do it. It's practicing radical, foolish, excessive generosity for the sake of those who have nothing so that you get more of God, more nearness. So what do we, uh, where do we go? Where do we go from here? What, do we, uh, what are ways that we can tangibly respond to this? Um, I think the first step that you could take if you want that reward, if you want to start cultivating more generosity in your life, the first step is to start practicing generosity, right? You, you, um, if you want to get in shape, you don't wait until you get in shape to go to the gym, right? Like you go to the gym to get in shape and you start exercising. And as you exercise, you grow, your muscles change, and you actually become more of who you're wanting to be by practicing and doing the thing. So yeah, Jesus says, sure, you have mixed motives. Your heart is not completely pure. If you want a more pure heart, if you want to practice the kind of generosity that Jesus is talking about here, start by doing something generous. Start by giving something away and you can say, hey God, my motives are totally mixed up in this. My heart is not in the right place. I don't think I can get it there by myself, but I want what Jesus is talking about here. So will you help me? And try doing that for a year. Try 
giving yourself away, showing mercy, being kind to those who have less than you do, asking God to meet you there. And my hunch is that God, through his grace, through the spirit, is going to make you into the kind of person who thinks about yourself less, who actually practices selfish generosity for the sake of another person. So what's the first thing we can do to respond to Jesus' teaching? Well, we can start being generous. We can start giving ourselves away. We can start giving our resources away. You don't have to like jump all the way in. You don't have to give away a quarter of everything you bring in. Maybe you just start by giving something away. See how that goes and then just keep going. I have a great opportunity and way that you can actually do that. And it is affordable Christmas. Look at that. Do you like how uh, I worked the announcement into the sermon instead of giving an announcement? Hey, affordable Christmas is something that we've been doing for years to try to do what Jesus is talking about here. It's a way that we can give of ourselves, we can give of our time, we can give of our money, uh, and we can bless those in our community who are actually in need. So the big idea of Affordable Christmas is we partner with our sister congregation in Midtown, we build a store, we go and we buy a bunch of toys, and then we sell them for like crazy dirt cheap money. So the parents can maintain dignity, they can buy Christmas for their children in a way that works for them uh, and is like really, really meaningful. Um, So we need presents. You probably walked past a bunch of toys out in our lobby. Uh, We were partnering with um, specific people for this. And so we have a lot of older kids this year. So if you're wondering what to buy, um, we need presents for kids who are eight and up, uh, boys and girls. That's that's the main need. We need people who can help uh, volunteer uh, during the thing. It's December 3rd from 9 to 12 p.m. up at uh, uh, Midtown. So 39th and Main, uh, basically, you can give you know, a few hours of your day. You can flip pancakes. You can serve breakfast. You can shop with people. You can wrap presents. And it's a really meaningful time. Um, and you'll probably experience a little bit more of what Jesus means when he says it's more blessed to give than to receive in doing this. So bring your kids. Go to Target. Uh, buy a toy. Explain why you're doing it. Get your community group together. Go shopping together. Uh, and it's coming up quick. So uh, in the next couple of weeks, like, we would love to be able to bless a ton of families uh, in in our city. We have these cards out there if you want more information and uh, ways that you can jump in and serve. So start practicing generosity. Here's a great way that you can practice generosity. The last growth step, I think, uh, the last thing that you can do today to follow Jesus, to live in obedience to him, is just to look at Jesus. Look fully at him Grab onto all the grace that you can get from him because remember, the reason that we do this is because we are a people who have received mercy. That fundamentally defines who we are. So if you find yourself struggling to be merciful, struggling to be kind, struggling to be generous, well then look at the source of mercy. Look at where you receive mercy in your life. Uh, There's a Scottish pastor in the 1800s named Robert Murray McShane. He died when he was really young, but had like this crazy intense um, blip of a ministry. And he was preaching a sermon to his congregation in Scotland. And he noticed like there was this real resistance towards helping the poor in his congregation. And so he preached a sermon on Jesus' words that it's more blessed to give than uh, than to receive. Uh, Listen listen to what he says. 
he lists out three objections that he's heard, and then he answers them. So McShane says, objection number one, my money is my own. Answer, Jesus might have said, my blood is my own. My life is my own. Then where would we have been? Objection number two, well, the poor are undeserving. Answer, Christ might have said, they're all wicked rebels. Why should I lay down my life for them? I'll give it to the angels. They deserve it. But no, he left the 99 and came after the lost. He gave his blood for the undeserving. Objection number three, the poor may abuse it. Answer, Jesus might have said the same thing. Indeed, he probably could have said it with far greater truth because Christ knew that thousands would trample his blood underneath their feet, that most would despise it, that many would make it an excuse for sinning more, yet he gave his own blood. So if you would be like Jesus, give much, give often, give freely to the vile, to the poor, the thankless, and the undeserving. Christ is glorious and happy, and so will you be. Remember his own word, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So if you find yourself in need of mercy, look to Jesus. If you see in yourself the hypocrite, more comfortable wearing a mask, looking for the praise that comes from other people, look to Jesus. If you have an insatiable pride inside of yourselves that's always looking to show that you're better than the person next to you, look to Jesus. And as you do that, as you grab onto his mercy, as you grab onto his grace, you actually become the kind of person that he's talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. So again, that's why we end every single service in communion. It is a tangible way for us to physically, involving our whole bodies, come to the foot of the cross and remember and grab hold of the mercy that is available to us through Jesus. So if you're a Christian, if your hope is in Jesus, come and take this meal. The way that we practice communion here is we will have three stations in front, one station in the balcony. Uh, the station in the balcony will be bread, wine, and juice. We'll have two bread, wine, and juice stations down here. Wine is in the stoneware. Juice is in the glass. We'll also have a gluten-free single-serve station off to the left down here. You'll just come forward, tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the wine or the juice, uh, and remember, oh, this... The grace of Jesus is for me. That's my hope. My hope for becoming the kind of person that I want to be is Jesus. My hope for a reward relationship with the Father is Jesus. If you find yourself um, as one who maybe is more uh, needy than one who uh, has a lot to offer, you're, you're in great company. We have people who would love to pray for you and pray with you. If there are physical needs in your life, like we, we have benevolence money that we love to give away to help people. So come, come and talk to a pastor, a staff member, uh, and we would love to do whatever we can to help you. So if you are trusting in Jesus for your righteousness, grabbing onto his mercy, come and take communion. If you're not, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. Maybe sit in your pew, uh, ask someone to pray for you, and maybe consider that the reward and promise that Jesus is talking about is the best way and to grab hold of him.
Let's pray, and then communion servers and uh, the band can come forward. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you have grace for us. Thank you that you are merciful. Um, God, will you make us into the kind of people who love to give freely and to give generously? Uh, will you yet yeah, not let us be defined by stinginess or grasping onto the things that we have, but instead like give us hearts that are merciful, that are compassionate, that are full of your grace and that overflow into loving and helping all of those who are around us. Um, so yeah, Jesus, we're thankful. And we want the reward that, we're t- that you're talking about. We want more of you. We want to know the Father deeply. We want to see the Spirit at work here in this room and in our lives. Uh, so God, I pray that you would do that. We meet every need that we have and then help us to go out and meet the needs of those around us. Pray all this in your name. Amen. Come to the table when you're ready.